Today is part two in our series entitled Cosmic Conflict, and we're talking about issues in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Wanted a brief review from last week. Last week we said that the book of Revelation is divided into two major sections. It is divided into the historical and the eschatological sections. We also said that the book of Revelation is a chiasm. Steve really likes the chiastic structure. <laughs> and it is a form of poetry. Have you ever tried to read the book of Revelation and discovered that it's not in chronological order? And scholars have noted that the entire book of Revelation is in the chiastic structure that we discussed last week. It's a mirror image, and the center of the chiasm is Revelation chapter 12, the great controversy panoramic view. When you look at Revelation chapter 12, we made the observation that it's also in a chiastic structure as well. The book of Revelation is a chiasm, and then the center of the book of Revelation chapter 12 is also in a chiastic structure, and we said the center of the center of the book of Revelation, you can see it there on the screen, is Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. We're doing a review from last week, and if you were not here last week, you can go online to our website, which is found in your bulletin, and download our sermon there. It's an MP3 format, podcasting. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles today to Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 10, our scripture reading today. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to read the verses leading up to the center of the center of the book of Revelation. And war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Here's the pronouncement from heaven, the center of the center of the book of Revelation. It is salvation-centered. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Can you say amen? We said last week that rebellion started in a perfect place within a perfect being created by a perfect God. This is known as the mystery of iniquity, we read from Ezekiel and Isaiah, and we said that De Lucifer desired three things. He desired a higher position, an exalted throne, rulership, and dominance. He also questioned God's authority. And last week we said that the central issue in the great controversy is concerning the character of God as expressed in his what? In his law. We said that the character of God is found in his law. It is a transcript of his character. We said that in the Old Testament, in the Ark of the Covenant, there were angels that were hovering above the throne of God, and the Ark of the Covenant was a box inside of the Ark. Moses was instructed to place 
the Ten Commandments indicating that the foundation of the government of God was his moral law. We also said that the law of God was so unchangeable, so immutable, that the only way that God could allow sinners back into heaven who had broken the law, the wages of sin is death, was for him the lawgiver to die. We said that the law is so unchangeable, so sacred, that God himself had to die to meet his, its claims. And we also said that at the cross, you see the perfect picture of two things. Justice, Jesus dying to meet the claims of the law. But mercy, Jesus dying as our substitute in our place. Amen? Their mercy and justice are together, demonstrated at the cross. That's a review. And we come to our thesis question here this morning in our study. And this is a question that is asked by Christians, well-meaning individuals. Perhaps you yourself have asked this question and the question goes something like this, why was sin permitted? Have you ever asked this before? Why did God allow it? Furthermore, with God's foreknowledge, He knows the future. How could God create Lucifer, whom He knew would choose a path that would lead to all the sin and the suffering that we see in our world today. Put yourself in God's place. Now, I'm not saying that we should play God, but it's a very difficult decision. Can you imagine what is going through the heart and the mind of God as He's about to create this perfect, beautiful being called Lucifer, and He knows, perfectly understanding in His mind, knowing the future, knowing the beginning from the end, that in creating Lucifer... It was going to lead to all of this. That was a difficult decision, wasn't it? And some people have said, look, couldn't God just have not created Lucifer? We could have avoided all this. And many people that are in the midst of suffering today have asked this question, why, God, did you allow this to happen? Why is sin permitted? We come to this passage as we begin our study here today. It's found in 1 John 4, verse 8. You can see it there in your study guide. It's familiar to all of us. First John 4, verse 8, it says, He who does not, what does it say? He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is the definition of love. According to the Bible, when you look up love in the dictionary, it should say God. That is what the Bible is saying. God is the very definition. He is the epitome, epitome, the demonstration of what love is. We live in an age today where love is being redefined. Love doesn't mean that everything is permitted. 
remember as a child, I would say to my parents, I wouldn't say this explicitly, but I would imply it, oh, how, why was I born into this home? You're so unloving. You won't let me do anything I want. And parents will know that in order for there to be love, there needs to be boundaries, amen? Because if you live in a home that has no boundaries, has no parameters, it is anarchy. That is not happiness. That is not love. A parent that allows his child to do whatever he or she wants to do is not a loving parent. But here we have the very definition of love. God is love. What does that mean? What are the implications of the nature of God being the very definition of love? And I like to explain it in this way in the marriage relationship. When a man loves a woman, not Daniel, amen, amen. I saw some people looking over there. Daniel's about to be married. And then the woman loves the man, reciprocates. They decide to be in a relationship, and then if the relationship matures, they decide to get married. And they stand there at the altar and say those words, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, forsaking all others, amen till death do us part, and you seal that marriage covenant with a promise. It's beautiful, isn't it? And what makes it so beautiful is that there are two people that could choose anyone in the world, but they choose to be with one single individual for life. What if you were forced to be with another individual for the rest of your life? Is that love? We call that slavery. You never see a bride going down the aisle at gunpoint. It's a crime. <laughs> Saying, you will marry me. We don't call that love. We call that a lot of other things. Anytime that in the love relationship that you take out volition, free will, and moral capacity, love no longer exists. Isn't that right? In order for love to exist, there has to be choice. That's what makes it so beautiful. Two people choosing not being forced, two people choosing to be together for the rest of their life, but if two people are forced to be together, or one party is forced to be with another individual for the rest of their life, that is bondage. That's slavery. That's not love. I want you to think about this. God, in His very definition, His very nature, is love. But in order for there to be love, we come to our first corollary there in your study guide. Sorry about the word corollary. I couldn't think of a better word. Corollary number one, love cannot exist without choice. 
In order for there to be love, there has to be free will. There has to be volition. Anytime you take out choice and you put in force, it no longer becomes love. Love ceases to exist. We see that in the very nature of God. He is love. He is a relational God. He's an individual that wants to be in a dynamic relationship with human beings. And here in the beginning, when God decided to create individuals in a relationship with Him, by the way, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there was a community. Notice there are three, not two. Because if there's just two individuals, there's a tendency for it to become selfish. But there's three. Perfect love, perfect community, as exhibited in the Trinity. For some reason, and I don't know why, God decided to step outside of the community of the Trinity to create individuals, beings, with which he could have a relationship. He wanted to have a dynamic relationship with individuals, and he had three choices. Number one, he could create robots. They would do whatever he wanted. Number two, he could create individuals that would only choose to serve him. They would have freedom of choice, but with his foreknowledge, he'd say, oh, I'm not going to create this individual because he's going to choose against me. And you only choose individuals that would choose him. you following me, yes or no? The third option is to create individuals that regardless of what decision they would make, he would create them with the capacity to choose for or against him regardless of the foreknowledge that he had. And I want to contend here today that God chose the third option because I believe that God knew that the third option was the option that had the greatest potential in relational value. I'd like to expound on that a little bit later. But God created relational beings and in order for Him to have a relationship, they had to have a certain moral capacity. I have a picture of a cow on the screen. As a human being, what type of relationship can you have with a cow? You can have some sort of a relationship. The, rela the cow provides for human needs. But is it a dynamic relationship? I would argue no. If there is a relationship, I would say that it's most likely a one-sided relationship. The, the, the cow doesn't bring you flowers. All right? it, it's a cow. Now, why is that? It, part of it has to do with intelligence, but something more than that. Why is it that your relationship with a cow is very limited? It has to do with moral capacity. How bad can a cow be? doesn't produce milk or breaks out of its pen. But you don't hear of cows stealing, holding up banks or embezzling money. How, how good can a cow be? Good cow, right? The, the moral capacity is limited. Your relational potential with another being, is directly related to the moral capacity. You following me, yes or no? Little moral capacity, little relationship. 
I come to the next picture. Here's my two beloved dogs, George and Lily. Can you have a relationship with a dog? Yeah, I come home. It's great. I love dogs. They're always happy to see you. Whenever I come home, wagging their tail, just, just really happy. And, and, and there is a relationship there. Uh, they like me because I feed them. I throw the ball with them. and They know a few tricks. Is a relationship with a dog better than a cow? Yeah, yeah. yeah I would argue. Some, some people would say no, but I, I say I have a more dynamic relationship with a dog than I do I would with a cow. Now, how bad can a dog be? Uh, George is the red one. He, he's kind of sneaky. And when I'm not around, he's all going around the house. Came home one day, the whole counter was cleaned out. Go to him, he's got an apple in his mouth. They did a CSI test with his hair samples and found out it was him. Lily's a smarter one. We thought she might have framed him, but George did it. How good can a dog be? I've seen some good dogs at the border sniffing things. You see, the capacity is, is greater, isn't it? The relational value is better, but is it the most dynamic that we can have? I don't sit down with George and say, hey, let's talk about the philosophy of life. It just doesn't work. It's not dynamic. It's limited. Now, let me ask you this question. What is the relational potential with a human being? Now, think about this. What is the relational potential with a human being? I would venture to say limitless. Limitless. I believe that when God created man in the image of God, he created us with a limitless relational potential. And those of you that are married, you know what I'm talking about. In the beginning, you don't think it can get any better. But then as the years go on, your relationship just gets better and better and better. But listen to this. With great relational potential comes greater risk. How bad can a human being be? How good can a human being be by the grace of God? This year I went to Cape Town, South Africa. I was there for some meetings and I went to the Holocaust Museum there. And as I walked through those halls and looked at the pictures, I was so shocked at how sinister the human mind could be. Here, the machinery of Nazism had systematically planned every detail of the genocide of six million Jews. As we come to the notion of the cosmic conflict, we observe that God is a relational God. And this was the decision that God had to make. He wanted 
limitless relational potential, but with limitless relational potential came incredible risk. And here God made the decision to create beings with infinite relational capacity, very well knowing that in that relationship, that person could choose not to respond, and hence the risk of evil and of good. We come to our next corollary. Corollary number two. Choice means the possibility of sin. God is love. Love means choice. Choice means the possibility that they won't respond. And that is exactly what happened. Lucifer, standing in the very presence of God, a created being, perfect in every way that he was created. He did not come with faulty machinery. God did not create a devil. God created a perfect individual with infinite moral capacity. But with infinite moral capacity and relational capacity comes a risk of incredible evil and incredible good. And here, Lucifer chose the other way. We read last week, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 14, How are you fallen from heaven, Lucifer, O son of the morning? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Lucifer said, look, I'm not only going to not respond to your love. Look, I can do a better job. I can run the universe better than you. There were questions posed in the great controversy that had never been asked before. He said, God is not transparent. God is not fair. Imagine what would have happened if Lucifer starts to ask questions regarding the character of God and he goes to the angels and says, look, you don't know what I've seen. I stand closer to God than anybody else. And let me tell you something. God isn't being transparent. He's not sharing all the cards. The principles upon which his government is founded, his law, is kind of shady. And as he's uttering those words, imagine that a bolt of lightning comes from the air and evaporates Lucifer. Imagine that you're that other angel that's been just hearing these words. What would be your response? I'll tell you what my response would be. I'm not going to do that ever. Right? Oh, don't, don't ask any questions about God or His government because uh, you won't be around. That's what's going to happen to you. Lucifer, uh, you, better, you better get in shape. Furthermore, in the back of people's minds, there would always be that lingering question. Maybe Lucifer had a point. Maybe, maybe God isn't so transparent. Maybe there's something that he's not revealing to us. Maybe Lucifer did have a better way. That's why God had to take him out so soon. And so here, God was left with a dilemma. Do I take Lucifer out in the beginning? Or do I let things play out? Prior to this time, 
No one knew about any other way than following God. And suddenly, questions were asked that had never been asked before, and God had to make a decision. I think that parents face the same thing when they have children. You have no guarantee that child's going to love you back. That child can walk out on you, reject you, disown your family name, hurt you more than anyone else in the world can. But parents choose to have children. Why? Great risk, but great relational potential. Isn't that right? And so this is what had to happen. And here God had to make a decision. Sometimes parents have to step back, even though you counsel them, you tell them, what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes they go out and say, I have to learn on my own. You have to let them go. And that's what happened here in the beginning. God could have snuffed out the devil immediately, but he chose not to do so because there would have been questions lingering in the minds of the beings in the universe relating to the character of God. And what type of relationship can you have with anyone if you don't trust them? Is that a dynamic relationship? If you have questions about their character? And John recognized that. And here comes our next corollary. I know it says number one. It should say number three. Corollary number three. God allows a demonstration. A what? A demonstration of the result of sin. God allows a demonstration of the results of sin. In other words, there were beings, I believe, that even sided with God that still had questions regarding his government. In other words, when Lucifer came out and said, look, I have a better way, no one knew. He could have been right. His arguments were so compelling that one-third of the angels took their place with Lucifer. It was a compelling argument. He said, look, God isn't being transparent. God isn't there. I have a better way. So God said, look, all right, let's let things play out so that all can see. I think that was the most difficult decision, and next week we'll cover what it actually cost. Because God did not stand in heaven and say, let's let this experiment begin. When God let this demonstration happen, it cost God everything. He didn't sit in heaven sipping lemonade and say, oh, what's happening? I, I think I'm right. Look at all this mess. God invested himself. There were questions in the great controversy that needed to be answered. And as these questions were put forth, God allowed a demonstration of the principles of Satan, Lucifer, to be played out before our very eyes. I'm not going to be so pretentious here today to claim that in a 30-minute presentation that we can cover all the questions related to this. Nor do I claim to have all the answers. But I do know this, that what we see all around us, the sin, the suffering, the degradation, is a demonstration of what happens when someone says, I have a better way. All of this shows us what really happens when the seeds that were sown in heaven are played out 
here on earth and come to fruition. Nahum 1 verse 9 says, Affliction will not arise a second time. It means that sin will not come up a second time. Why is that? When we go to heaven, we will always have the possibility, the potential, to choose another way. When we get to heaven, it's not as though you're locked down and no longer have the moral capacity to choose against God. When we get to heaven, we will always have the power of choice. But we will not choose another way. Why? Because we, human beings, have all experienced firsthand that God's way is the only way. Amen? That when we get to heaven, and, and there won't even be a temptation, we'll always have that moral capacity to choose another way. Because once you take out that moral capacity, the relational value goes down. God always leaves that relational capacity, but here it is forever settled in our minds and the universe that, look, God's way is the best way. God is not holding anything out on us. There's no question regarding the character and the nature of God, and we will never choose, not because we can't, but because we won't. Because we have seen the most ugliest demonstration of what sin does. Corollary number four, the knowledge of the results of sin places the universe in a state of eternal security. The knowledge of the results of sin places the universe in a state of eternal security. That means that throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, the universe will never go back. And here, God, I believe this is just a scratching the surface of what was going through the mind of God. God, with his foreknowledge, had a decision that he had to make. He wanted the most ultimate relational potential. He didn't want the relationship with a cow or a dog. He wanted infinite growth, infinite potential, infinite relational love with human beings and other created intelligences. And so God took the risk and stepped out and said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to let things play out so that when things are settled at the end of the great controversy, the question is settled. Everyone trusts God implicitly, and with that trust comes incredible relational potential. And then throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, we can experience a relationship with God and each other that we have never fathomed in this life. Amen? And that's what God wants for you and I. When we get to heaven, there'll never be an end 
on the relational value. It will just get better. Every day when you get up, wow. Wow, God. Your husband, your spouse, wow, I, I never had this relationship with you. With your children. Infinite moral capacity. And God said, look, from the standpoint of eternity, even though it's going to cost me everything, even though it's going to be ugly, I'm going to let these things play out because I want eternal security and eternal relational development. I'm going to do it. Amen. What a decision. What a decision. The great controversy is a demonstration of God's love. I know that's hard to believe, but it is. It is a demonstration of what God's love is like. And I'd like to close with this quotation from the last paragraph of the Conflict of the Ages series. If you've ever read the Conflict of the Ages series, or you haven't, I want to encourage you to do so. The Conflict of the Ages series begins with patriarchs and prophets. The first words are, God is love. The last words of the great controversy end the same way God is loved. The great controversy is ended. Praise the Lord. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. Praise the Lord. Every question will be answered. Trust will be implicit. And every being inanimate and animate will declare that God is love. I want to be there, friends. Amen. I'm tired of broken relationships. I'm tired of misunderstandings. I'm tired of hurting and being hurt. God says, I have a relational potential that you cannot imagine. And he wants each one of us to be there. Amen. My response on the screen and on your study guide as we wrap up. There's a lot of questions more questions than answers sometimes. My response, Lord, help me to trust in you in those moments that I don't understand. God doesn't ask us to trust him blindly. He says, look at the cross. You can trust me. Lord, help me to trust in you in those moments that I don't understand. Lord, I pray that your love would shine through me. How many of you want to say that? I want Jesus' love to shine through me. Amen. That's my desire as well. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you created us with a limitless relational potential. Lord, we have questions. Help us to trust in you in those moments that we don't understand. Help us to look at the cross and recognize that you have our best interest in mind. Lord, help us to believe that what you have in store for us in heaven, we cannot even fathom here on earth. 
We thank you that you took the risk that cost you everything at the cross. And we pray that our hearts would be melted in appreciation for what you have done. That justice and mercy were there at the cross and we pray today that we would accept you as our Savior. Lord, there's nothing in us that is worth anything apart from you. So heal us today. Restore us. Renew us. Mend our broken relationships. Mend our relationship with you and help us to be with you in glory as the years of eternity roll. We pray that we would be there to utter those words that God is love. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.